0: Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations.
1: Vladimir Putin really does have ways, known or unknown to Donald Trump, to influence Donald Trump. Then every day that is a good day for President Trump is a good day for President Putin. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The heart.
0: Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your mostly weekly, almost rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. My name is Camille Foster. I do various things at a place called Freethink, and I'm delighted to be with you here this week. Uh, I'm joined by (laughs) Matt Welch, editor-at-large at Reason Magazine, and Michael Moynihan, who is the... What is your title? I'm the national correspondent. You're a national correspondent. A national correspondent. I think we have a couple of them. A, a national yeah. correspondent for the ones, Vice national. News Tonight, Mint. which airs on HBO. Although he also contributes various things to that other Vice show on HBO. And he More is so frequently season, yeah. featured yeah. in these feature-length documentaries. He's a very accomplished wordsmith. Oh, thank you. And he has the it's diabetes.
2: Amazing. I got the Beats, but I'm still going to drink the <laughs> rum that somebody sent us that's called Sugarcane Rum, which is a bad idea. And by the way, we have listeners that got the Beats because I remember my Dexcom uh, continuous glucose monitor beeping and squawking mm-hmm. uh, because I was getting low and somebody sent me an email. It was like, by the way, you got to get some of that glucose tablets there. They yeah. heard it. So, we got yeah. some to be, Beats.
0: some to be Beats fair, were, rhymes in life. Well, apparently John Carter... Who sent us this wonderful wooden leg rum? Uh, Very made nice. from sugarcane. Yes, and uh, it's actually it's produced in leg is what's gonna produced, happen produced in in yeah, Exactly, it, produced <laughs> in the great not. state of New Jersey. Yeah. Foot, um,
2: foot amputation rum. <laughs> Wilford Brimley rum. <laughs> so you got the diabetes. By the way, when we were laughing when we were, when we were coming in, just to clarify, yeah. um, it was because we were talking about. How last week, uh, <laughs> Joe Scarborough uh, released a uh, single. Uh, that was a Me Too, Times Up, Me Too single, as uh, an anthem. Like an anthem. I, but, we, but but it no was, one listened. It was
0: actually not last week. It was for the Women's March. Oh, it was.
3: It was like that weekend. I don't, I don't know when that yeah. was.
0: But but. Uh, none of
2: us. Listen, you listen to it, actually. I listened to a little bit of it. Yeah, he's not wearing only socks to discover that yeah. he
3: was
0: totally serious.
2: So because, Matt like, and I whole... were just talking about what the song possibly sounded like. Well, no, it's
1: more that like I wanted to imagine. Let's just let the, let the cat out of the bag. I wanted it to be. If you're really going to like be punk rock about this, you turn it into. A late 80s decline of the Western civilization, part two uh, type of uh, hair metal anthem that's all filled with double entendre's entund- about sex, right? Yeah, but if you, I thought it was a See, the courage see, for your see you're
2: almost there because because you hadn't heard, or maybe you didn't remember the heavy 80s heavy metal response to band-aid do they know it's christmas time which was very presumptuous that people in africa were all christians and cared about christmas and it's like there'll be no snow it was like it's in certain places they don't they're not really caring about this stuff it was more the food that was the issue so i took exception to the lyrics of that song but there was a heavy metal version they were like we got to get in on this you know we're good people thing and it was called hearing aid (laughs) and they had a uh, song called stars in which the the you gotta listen to this You gotta go To YouTube right now Pause this podcast Actually don't Because then you'll just Get caught up In watching all the videos um, And won't listen To the rest of it Wasn't there But a- it's Ingve Malmsteen Rob Halford oh, uh, uh, Ronnie James Dio Who was like a
1: Where up to the witch <laughs> yeah,
2: Who was like Four foot two And like a big Basketball fan I seem to remember yeah. By the way And uh, in the last singer In Black the, the guy that I think replaced Ozzy in Black Sabbath But anyway That was my favorite thing So we gotta do that, or maybe like a scorpions, like winds of change. Right. Yeah, I could never I, I always thought he was saying Went down to Donkey Kong That was my misheard <laughs> lyric in that. and that I was like, yeah, but they're German Who I'm, knows?
0: Not, I'm not going to underscore the fact That I don't know what you guys are talking about But I do want to take this opportunity To say to, that I'm black <laughs> <laughs> To mention that we are also joined by the uh, the voice of God Although, you know what's funny? For everyone listening It's not obvious me. that he is the voice no, of God No, he talked about you Because he's, he's he? not in, he's well, not in did, the no, room no. I did no, I did, did talk about you Really? Introduced you, I sure oh, yeah. did. I was too. Busy. I thought it was actually a little too much. But now we're but too now busy was, singing. But I was trying to introduce Anthony Fisher, yeah. um, who is behind the computer. And I, I said it's weird because we say voice of God for the three of us who are in this room wearing headphones. Yeah. He's the voice of God to us because we can't see him. He's yeah. a disembodied voice and he's talking to us. But you know, it's a real mindfuck.
1: Was so, a, so. For
0: the people listening to this podcast, it's really it's not that strange. We're all the voice of God. Yeah, he's like the Baba mm. Booey
2: It's not that strange. <laughs> Is
0: it's really not, not that strange.
2: But like, time's up. And <laughs> it two. Yeah, no, I love I that understand. song. Thank you, Joe Scarborough, for like, you have not even heard the song. <laughs> no, but he, yeah, ended, got, he see, ended
1: sexual uh, assault. We can call him Sockless Joe. Sockless right? Joe. Sockless yeah, Joe it's like Shoeless
2: Joe Jackson. <laughs> Joe
1: Jackson. I just say Shoeless Joe Jackson. Anyway, um, so, so is, is Anthony Fisher the, an Old Testament God, just to, to be finished with, or a New Testament God? I, mean, I think that he might be a little bit conflicted I think he's due like, to marriage. He's like it,
2: Joseph Smith. Yeah, it really depends on the day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, sometimes I'm Joseph Smith picking up that, that lost gospel in Buffalo, New York. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. Joseph I think it was, Smith wasn't a It wasn't in New York. What was it? What was the New York? What was that? Where he, it was he, like a town that had like a single-A baseball team. I mean, it was like Savia. Like Batavia. Stuff. It, was it, what was the attended. town? Uh, shout out to Howard I Owens. don't know, but I, I do want to say
0: Joseph Smith was a prophet. He was not a god. He
2: wasn't yeah. a deity. I know, but... What well, about Ben Carson, though? Manchester, New York is what I'm seeing here, which I
1: didn't even know there was a Manchester, New York. So, wait a second. Mormons are Mancunians? Nah, yeah, I don't know if
2: that's true. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Yeah. Um, I, not let's, let's not get let's not get up on the great Joseph Smith and his golden plates that only he could read at 14 years old. You know, and 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 he wasn't lying about it because no 14 year olds ever lied about anything. But um Ballard. so yeah, what a, yeah, it was Palmyra. Palmyra. Yeah, that's right. New York. Palmyra. No. Yeah. I could keep saying it like I'm like I'm Johnny Carson or something. Uh so what are we talking about today,
0: Camille? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe we could just make something up. Yeah, I mean, you know, no. Well, no. I mean, the the biggest story, the biggest story of the day, is not Time's Up, um, which is weird. Um, The biggest story. The oh, uh, biggest story of the day is this Release the Memo
1: business. That's the B-side to Joe, Joe Scarborough's <laughs> called Release the Memo. I think we should release the Fusion. Yeah. That's where it's going to really come through. I don't yeah.
0: even know what you're talking about. Is Sorry. this related to the memo?
1: It's Fusion GPS. I mean, think of all the different things about ah, this I that at various doing. times have been compared to or characterized yeah. as worse than Watergate. So, so Fusion GPS, the Steel Dossier, Yeah. Uh, uh, obviously the unmasking. Let's not forget the unmasking
2: That was an an original Devin Nunes joint Was the unmasking Yes, this is
0: after after the whole business with the unmasking The coordination with the Trump administration He actually recused himself from the investigation I believe he was reprimanded by his own committee He was cleared of this business In what, December? I believe so And immediately undertook a project To create a whole new... (laughs) (laughs) cluster catastrophe for everyone to deal with with the release the memo scandal Devin Nunes is a real (laughs) character (laughs) Um, (laughs) what is just I mean what is going on which is super which is super weird that the same guy has now again created a new calamity and it's pretty much the same thing there is there is secret confidential information that this committee is privy to yeah and He believes that it's totally scandalous that Americans don't know. So Nunez uh, decides to summarize these dramatic findings. He circulates them amongst his fellow committee members. And eventually uh, we end up in a situation where they are approving a Republican drafted document, which summarizes the certain revelations related to, I guess, the specific FISA court proceedings related to the surveillance of one Mr. Page, a former advisor to the Trump administration.
2: Literally the dumbest man who has ever ambled across the border into Washington, D.C. Yeah. Yeah. Who, by the way, had a FISA warrant against him, I think, in 2014, too. Yes. So, I mean, you don't really need this steel dust. I mean, this guy has been been under their watchful eye for some time. He lived in
1: Russia for three years. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And was like friends. Like He played on like the FSB softball team. I mean, he was like traveling in some really Really dodgy He's circles. like the
1: Johnny Depp character in the in the, the movie called Mexico or something like that no, uh, no, that was a real movie uh yeah. it's, it's, like it's country it's a, it, or the Mexican it was called uh he played like a, C, a CIA supervillain assassin guy this is back before he was like vomiting in his own face all day long yeah. and going bankrupt uh it, because he divorced the French woman never divorced the French woman um <laughs> Emmanuel
2: are you listening? Are You listening? Honey that's, that's a promise.
1: Uh she literally it, wasn't it once upon a... a time in Mexico? Could have been, yeah, could have been but right. I don't think so. I think it's just the anyways um, uh, he walked around wearing a CIA t-shirt um, mm. as like a yeah. guy working for the CIA. Yeah, uh, that's kind of what Carter <laughs> Page was doing yeah. in uh, <laughs> Moscow, except yeah. it was you know CCCP, like a uh, money I shirt. mean, he really like.
2: Um, there's no interviews that he wouldn't do. That's when you realize this guy is a bad deep uh-huh. cover agent. Yeah, because. Um, you know, he did like four hours of Chris Hayes and Chris <laughs> Hayes is just like beating him up and he's like smiling this beatific. <laughs> it's incredible. He looks like he's having some sort of stroke and he's on TV and we did an interview with him, too. And like he just he'll do anything. He's like he is literally Let's he's like on the fifth column. I guarantee you he'd we do should it. we should do I that. Guarantee I, you know what? At this point,
0: though, at this point, I suspect he probably wouldn't. At the time I don't know. I, I, I
2: really don't know. let get that we'll, little red hat. We'll ask. Well, you I know, mean, he's like he's like Jamie Farr or something. He's like doing dinner theater <laughs> theater in like Onionta. I mean, he'd come on the podcast. Not uh, that we're that that would not. That's not the parallel.
0: No, I theater, understand. But he'll just do anything. Yeah, I but, just I was just saying that I think it might be hard to get him. And the reason I was suggesting that he wouldn't come is because he might not expect us to be particularly nice to him. Because you're not being nice right now.
1: I do you think, think I'm he, I'm he would listen to us? Yeah.
2: he's
0: He's literally sitting in an empty
2: room night now smiling.
1: I mean when, <laughs> Hayes, <laughs> when Hayes interviews him, it's Chris uh, who's uh, a, a nice uh, a nice fellow. He always breaks out about five minutes in, like with his own beatific mm. smile because he's like, dude, why are you here?" Like, yeah, I mean, it was great. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's for actually you a to really good here. interview technique, yeah. and I think I think it's actually a pretty good interview in that
2: way. Is like the point where you're like, "What are you like? Seriously, what are you doing?" Who's <laughs> There's so much stuff. There's so, so much stuff of interviews I've done in the past like year and a half that don't make it into the longer cut. Which is me like, like I this who was it? This, a producer of mine was like, "We should do a show." That said, are, that, that's called. Are you fucking serious, with Michael Moynihan. And she said, <laughs> she said she found four or five pieces <laughs> of there It was like, Are you fucking serious? And that's like, that's like my version of what Chris Hayes does. Is like it would just be me and Carter Page, like you know, <laughs> grinning like Chief wahoo, and me going, Are you fucking serious?
0: Can that's I? Fine? Can that's I, I... actually that's actually something we could do before you do this. No, no, before it's just, good just for tangent, a moment. Yeah. Because by the way, uh, can tangent. I? Can, before there's just tangent, been so many digressions. It's once upon a time in a, Mexico, 2003, according to anthony fisher that's right (laughs) yeah so there's just been so many digressions i want to be sure do we actually want to discuss this memo because Kinda. the memo, the memo hasn't actually been released. See, well, that's what we want to discuss here because be everybody tonight, has been tomorrow. talking about something
2: that nobody has seen. And yeah. it's an amazing thing. This is one of those things, like, who are you trusting in this? Whose narrative you're trusting? We don't, nobody's <laughs> seen this thing. Who is, to, well, there's some people on, on on cable news, but all of these people on Twitter making judgments about it either way. I mean, there is a, it smells like a rat. Like, you can't even believe it. And by the way, Christopher Link Ray, who who's running the FBI these days appointed by Donald Trump the FBI sends a letter which the FBI director by the way has one would presume he approved it and says this is totally wrong you've taken this stuff out of context now granted it's an attack on the FBI but the one thing that we do know and we can infer from this from what we know about it is that it's a it's a, it's a direct attack on Robert Mueller that's the reason for this that's why it exists that i would give anyone a hundred thousand dollars if there wasn't collusion to use that f- a fashionable word between the white house and republicans on this memo it's bouncing back and forth between the lines supposedly redactions supposedly additions etc but the whole thing stinks we haven't seen it you know and i don't also imagine this the FBI is a pretty professional organization. It does not mean that they do things in a brilliant way. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be skeptical of of what evidence they're using for FISA courts, et cetera. First of all, I don't, there's no part of me, and I've talked to a few people about this who know these things, somebody today, actually, that would the FBI actually try to get a FISA warrant against somebody who they already have gotten a FISA warrant against based on the Steele dossier? And actually, you know, it was interesting of all people I saw on my Twitter feed, Hugh Hewitt, who used to approve FISA warrants when he was in the White House, had a like an attack on Devin Nunes, weirdly, because he's kind of become this horrible Trump type. Uh, like a 10 tweet thing of like the amount of evidence that they would typically marshal. The problem was the judge would always rubber stamp basically everything. They just, there's no FISA warrants that are ever basically denied, but the FBI would do their due diligence, put together a huge packet in Hugh Hewitt's time. It was a long time ago. These things might've changed, but A few people I talked to, basic, obvious, you know, not idiotic thoughts would suggest that they're not going to take this oppo research from Hillary Clinton and then just apply for a FISA warrant from that, number one. Number two, it actually might be true too. Even if it came out of Christopher Steele, a former MI5 or MI6 guy, there might be some stuff in that this is actually true, and it might overlap with some intelligence that they had previously had. Do not think the second that man walked into Trump Tower, walked through whatever Trump office, that the FBI, who had had bells and whistles binging and buzzing and zipping for how, how many years, four or five years, about this halfwit, that they weren't paying attention. They didn't need the steel dossier to say like, "All right, let's go." We got Hillary's Oppo research. Now let's take. It, it just doesn't make sense.
1: The certainty, the certitude with which people are uh, working backwards on this is uh, it, it's breathtaking. There was so last week, we're recording this on Thursday. Hopefully, it'll be released on Friday. Uh, last week, I wrote a couple of pieces that were more on the meta. Uh, level uh, one was how worse than Watergate as a phrase is now worse than Watergate. Um, kind of making fun of the way. At this moment, uh, it's mostly. The Republican and Trump apologists who are saying any number of, of these different things that I was referencing before, the unmasking, the this, the, that, the others, whatever Sean Hannity is getting excited about in in, uh, in this hour are, you know, obviously much worse than Watergate. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, many uh, uh, Democrats and uh, uh, MSNBC contributors have been making the same point. John Dean has to make that point when he wakes up in the morning just as a kind I mean of, that's his, his, his morning his constitutional. avocado
2: toast is worse than
1: Watergate. <laughs> so, so annoying. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd written that thing and then I, I, I wrote another one that was uh, more uh, pointed at kind of the uh, the conservative apology uh, 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 complex, which is it's just it's it's really obvious the amount of hackiness that was coming up there. So I got an email from old fa- friend in the Reason family um, uh, who uh, tilts more in the direction of uh, of Trump, and it was nice, and and uh, and uh, I'm I'm not complaining about the email uh, the the. Interesting part of it was, you know, hey, you you should look at some other people uh, who are writing about this, Andrew McCarthy at at National Review and other people who are more skeptical about the Mueller investigation and the FBI thing and so on. That's fine. I want to read more. And Andrew McCarthy has some irrelevant experience, to be sure. And I've been reading him a lot anyways, uh, regardless of whether I agree with him. Um, But uh, there was a phrase in this email like – uh, so you know, this next week there's going to be a lot of news here. It'd be a really great time for Reason to come out with a definitive statement about this, and uh, and it just got me to think, as Moynihan just pointed out, definitive statement based on a four-page memo which nobody has read, which is based on underlying intelligence that not only even fewer nobody people ha- have has not read but mm-hmm. the guy who wrote the memo Nunez hasn't seen the underlying intelligence according to Adam Schiff who's a bullshit artist himself yeah. but uh, at I mean I think Nunez this is it's an important he's, point he's been watching uh, uh like like Nunez was been watching Schiff make an ass out of himself for a year and he's like I want to make an ass out of myself <laughs> yeah, I can big do too. that I mean Schiff goes on uh MSNBC about every hour to say like, you know, after, uh, after Russia successfully hacked our election, you know, and then just, it tumbles out from there. It's like, you're going to get to some conclusions here that aren't necessarily automatically supported. Uh, so it is, but to the idea that we need to come out with a definitive conclusion that everybody does and what's wrong with you that you haven't gotten, that you don't understand that the entire investigation is compromised or that obviously, uh, you know, Trump has broken a thousand laws and needs to be impeached based on this fucking memo. Um, Nobody knows everybody is working blind here and in blind, bad faith, working backwards from a conclusion. And so it's always in periods like this that I find particularly frustrating because in order to actually have any sense of knowing what I'm talking about, it would take so much time. Mm -hmm. Just like one of many things that are worse from Watergators is that, uh, you know, of the 17 lawyers and 20 other people on the Mueller team, uh, X number have donated in the past to Democratic campaigns. And that's obviously uh, evidence that this thing has is a partisan witch hunt. Okay, so what do you want to know? I want to know how does that compare with any, how does that compare with the the, the standard FBI person? How does that compare with previous investigations? What was the level of the donations? Was it 50 bucks? Was it 5,000 bucks? But it doesn't I don't matter. Know. It's like I you're
2: allowed to have fucking politics. Would it be okay if everybody on this FBI investigation voted or donated to the Trump campaign? That's their right. I mean, look, you impugn the professionalism of people immediately thinking they can't separate their jobs from their own politics. Just because the people who make these arguments are people who are like that. They are on TV. They are on talk radio. they can Their politics consumes their life. And if you make a donation to a candidate, it doesn't mean you can't properly do your job. If I have a, I'll give you an example of this. If I have a point of view about something and somebody digs up something from my past, something I've written in the past, and I want to do a straight news story on it, I can do that. And I have done that many times because I do my job separately from what I believe, and I think it's crazy that people can't have like. So, what do we expect? No, well, no donations. Okay, fine, fine. You want to do that? No donations. That's fine. That's a good rule. Let's make that rule. Then, what do we do? No blog posts. No tweeting. You're not allowed to have. A, so they're going to be sitting there with their own opinions. You're not going to rid them of their. No opinion. text
1: messages with the agency lawyer who you're fucking. At yeah, the time, yeah. Talking about this. I think that set. I
2: think, well, this is I think their political opinions were not the worst decisions
0: that these people yeah, were absolutely not. <laughs> so let's let's zoom. Let's zoom out really quickly. I mean, with respect to the memo, hysteria abounds at this particular moment yep. in time. Um, we were talking earlier about the uh, the Scarborough uh, program. And I I can't believe the times of earlier this this week. The on the on the Scarborough (laughs) program, (laughs) there that was the guitar solo. I I get that. (laughs) That was him. I appreciate that. He's Ingve. So disruptive. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That actually was our cold open. it it might it might be um, but no it's
2: early... not <laughs> oh,
0: that's our hot
2: open go
0: no I mean, sorry no it's sorry. fine uh, but earlier this week um, there was someone on um, I'm trying to remember exactly who it was uh, in fact I've got I've got the clip here so Uh-oh. let me let me grab it
3: quickly. Congressman, I'm going to ask you a question that I asked uh, Senator Murphy a little earlier. Um, uh, it's an impolitic question, and again, one that would have, been seemed, would have seemed absurd in almost any other circumstance. But uh, Congressman Nunes, your chairman, it is suggested by, by, not by me, but by people who follow these matters closely, is this, could possibly be someone who's be compromised by the Russians? Is that something you, that you consider a possibility? I can't speak uh, to his motives. I think he's been compromised by the White House. Uh, He certainly uh, seems to be willing to risk the republic to protect uh, the president, to risk the rule of law, to help uh, the president's case in the Russian uh, investigation. He's supposed to be recused. Uh, He's been recused in body in that he doesn't show up to the Russia witness interviews, but not in spirit. He has his hand all over every subpoena that he signs and now is uh, actively involved. Uh, in this very disruptive process. You just
2: part. need the question there. Yeah. Yeah. The bullshit answer we don't care the, the,
0: about. The, the bullshit answer is appropriate, though. It's, yeah, important, yeah. it's important when a congressperson is asked a completely baseless and utterly ridiculous question, and they don't respond... There's no fucking evidence of that. Uh, Twice. That's ridiculous. He he asked the question twice on asked the question twice to two different people. No one responded. I think two different congressmen.
3: Senator, it's John Heilman here. I want to ask you a question that under almost any other circumstances would be ridiculous and absurd. But under these circumstances, I think is actually warranted. Uh, Is it possible that the Republican chairman of the House Intel Committee has been compromised by the Russians? Is it possible that they actually have a Russian agent? running the House Intel Committee on the Republican side? I, 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 I hope that's not the
2: case, and I certainly have no information to suggest uh, that it is. Uh, I think that doesn't there his behavior
3: Doesn't his behavior speak of that, though? I mean, I'm not the first person who's raised this. He's behaving like someone who's been compromised, and, and there are people in the Intelligence Committee, in the intelligence community, and and others with great expertise in this area who look at him and say, that guy's been compromised. Who is this? This was uh John
2: Heileman. It used to be Halperin and and Heileman, but Halperin's in sex prison now because uh, he got done in the Me Too business. The, the bullshit, bullshit boilerplate.
0: <laughs> the bullshit boilerplate, um, you know, this is a ridiculous question. And I mean it, yeah. it would be ridiculous if not for the crazy moment that we find ourselves in. But you know, I keep hearing people say there might be some reason to conduct this investigation. There may be serious questions that actually need to be addressed with respect to Russian interference in the U.S. election. The notion that this whole thing has not been politicized to holy hell already is ridiculous. That happened a long time ago. The entire affair is hysterical. Republicans finding their own equally ridiculous Loosely supported um, conspiracy where the deep state is trying to undermine Donald Trump, planting evidence, getting fraudulent FISA warrants on the basis of the dossier alone seems to be maybe sort of the claim that we'll hear about tomorrow. I'm not sure. Conspiracy abounds and rumors of conspiracy abound. And part of what I find so irksome, as we talked about last week, is the assertion that criticism of the FBI, legitimate criticism and even conspiratorial musings about the FBI is threatening the Republic. But for some reason, somehow, criticism of the White House and conspiratorial musings about the same, an investigation of the same, that one of these things is a detriment to the Republic and the other is saving the Republic.
1: The Onion had a headline, I think, today, something along the lines of, like, uh, uh, all this attack on the FBI is really uh, hurting the uh the the credibility of a massive unaccountable uh spy organization <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's very that's, funny uh, yeah that's always been,
2: important uh, to remember but you know also important to remember that the real villain uh in that clip is john heilman i mean let's not absolutely. let's not uh-huh. let's not take our eye off the ball here john heileman who wrote was one half of the Uh, He was like the straight man and the other guy was a sexual harasser of the duo (laughs) of Alfred and Heilman who wrote Game Change, which became a movie on HBO. And they had HBO contracts, too. And then they did a show for Showtime. And then both of these dumbasses got a million plus dollar a year perch at Bloomberg Hmm. to do a show. That no one watched. That no one watched and flamed out. And it was, what is it called? All, it was not All Things Considered. It was called, um, the hell was it called? all do, With all due respect. Oh, dear uh, God. It was a terrible name for show. The show was terrible. They, I remember seeing them on the campaign trail when I was out a lot last um, year, swaggering around with the cameras following them because they were doing the Showtime show. And it's funny because at the real heart of it, I mean, they're hacks. I mean, they're just absolute hacks. Halpern Heileman did a book that was entertaining and people loved, um, and it's not a bad book. I mean, I read it at the time. It did a follow up that kind of flopped, but they're just—I mean, they're—they're just, they're absolutely. I hate this language, but they are the quintessential like Washington insiders who are, you know, just scratching people's backs and saying up, nothing who's interesting. Down. Who's up? Who's down? Kind of shit, and saying—and for someone to say on TV, I—you sent me that clip. I didn't see that clip saturating Twitter. That should be up with the bananas Sean Hannity clips that you get, Uh the bananas Alex Jones thing. Do you think the chairman of the Intelligence Committee is an agent in an asset of Russian intelligence is absolutely bonkers? Because Mm. I think it was the first or the second time, and I'll I'll look it up and find the actual the transcript, you can find the transcript It was not that one mm-hmm. <laughs> But is he, 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 he asked the question twice The other person he asked it And he said, you know, people are saying this You know, people are talking about this Who? Who is talking about this great <laughs> journo? you're getting a million dollars I, plus a year from I Bloomberg. I tried to track who? this down. I didn't nobody's find it. talking about yeah, it. I didn't find No, it. it is the dumbest, oldest trick in the book that I would, I would not allow a high school newspaper reporter to actually get away with is to some people say who, who are the, some people not saying he didn't say, you know, on background, I've been told this, well, he, he implied that this was commonly thought And I have never heard it. Maybe I'm not privy to these. It actually evolved.
0: It actually evolved. The first time he asked this question, he he insinuates that this is, you know, it's ridiculous. But, you know, in this current moment, you kind of have to ask. And he maybe some people are asking themselves, people who know maybe they're asking themselves what happened. The second time he asked the same question. Yeah. He actually goes further and says, you know, but people are asking this question. Yeah, and the people, the people was, that's me
2: Never about 14 you. minutes ago before the commercial break. And I find it so amazing that um, you can uh, look, Devin Nunes has got some problems. And I think the guy is, uh, yeah, I mean, this memo stuff, I think is absurd. And I think when the text of the memo is released and maybe five years down the lo- road, when this is a paragraph in a book about the Trump administration, we'll laugh at this guy and all <laughs> signs seem to be pointing to that. But to I mean that I mean, he's accusing him of treason, yeah, which is a offense that is punishable by death. yeah, and and
1: that's and <laughs> he's that's, the
2: Alger hiss of come on
1: and and so much of that is a throat clear, and you know, these people, uh, uh, even more than Moynihan right now, actually need to clear their throats uh, before they go <laughs> on. but you hear it constantly. Uh, today I was uh, uh, I swear to God, I was doing the dishes at home. And uh, and we have a, a little uh, micro TV there. It's the only time that I ever watch um, uh, cable news is if <laughs> you're I'm, like an old woman <laughs> in your kitchen. When you're not <laughs> when you're not in, you're with not your, in little, your little TV, black hey, and white TV or <laughs> on channel two. And yeah. um, and uh, and uh, and as I normally do, I have whatever uh, cable news. If I'm not watching the MLB network, obviously, um, or the, uh, the 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 like the live rock. The Spice, Spice Channel. The Axe Channel, Spice <laughs> Channel. Um, I, so I will have the opposition uh, know, network. Yeah. So like during Obama, it was Fox. And during now it's uh, MSNBC. <laughs> and uh, they uh, it was on MSNBC. And they're talking about the memo and other kind of stuff. And they went to uh, an expert. And I forget who it is, but someone I think who's a contributor. Uh-huh. Um, and like literally they, within three seconds of me turning this on, uh, there's someone on on their air saying, well, the real story here is how mm-hmm. Russia – Uh, Has attacked our Constitution. And so, like, Wait a second! Yeah. How does that work? How what, do they what, do, do it? What, what, Matt, do they get? Of... Do they get the the, the Elon Musk flamethrower? Yeah, the and Constitution then, like, attacker. <laughs> but what
2: is what is the what is the argument that the person makes? Or so they not make one? Do they not make no, one? No, no, no. <laughs> that's no. no, no that's the throat clear. It's yeah. like
1: they, it is. So they, they've attacked the Constitution. They've hacked the election. Yes, they
0: hacked the election. Whatever. And that, that is the throat clear. Right.
1: And then it's just like who's who's you know been bought off most uh, explicitly on this. And it's like wait a second. No. They Can't attack the Constitution. The Constitution can't be attacked. Really, when it gets degraded, it gets degraded from within, usually by popular majorities or by lawmakers who think they have a popular majority or by Supreme Court justices who feel like, yes, this is the only way that we're going to be able to get drug dealers or organized crime. We're going to have to kind of look the other way on Fourth Amendment and whatever. But that's how the Constitution gets degraded. It is impossible, actually, I think, unless my imagination is too narrow and cramped. It's impossible for the Constitution to be attacked by by a foreign thing person country adversary semi-adversary or whatever and this is this is Total uh, boilerplate at this point. Uh, watching people who are criticizing Donald Trump and it's bananas.
0: Well, certainly what they meant is that our our democracy was attacked. It's the standard. It's the standard explanation uh, that I'll hear in in virtually every context that certain criticism is endangering our democracy. Um, that particular voters partic- making particular choices is endangering the democracy. That the releasing of this memo will endanger our democracy by way of degrading the FBI. It's it's always the same allegation with respect to the Russian interference in the election. We've talked about, we've tried to quantify it in some way. There's the, the Twitter and Facebook shenanigans, the actual hacking of the DNC emails and the leaking of said emails, which may or may not have moved the needle in some direction. Um, in terms of the election, I I generally fall on the side of probably not, but I don't know. Maybe it did. Um, but, Here here we are. You know, it it seems to me that that's the most we can say. I don't know, gentlemen, we've we've been talking about.
2: Well, just one thing on that is that, you know, I I'm going to sound like a Chomsky out here and and it's hard for me to do so. And I don't think there's an exact moral equivalence here, but um, or even a political equivalence. But, you know, I know it's a boring point to make, but it's one that's worth making over and over and over again, is that. You you know you could be Victoria Newland the who was and the Obama administration recorded by the FSB talking about the Ukraine uprising. I mean, right. not a democracy and undemocratic things were happening. Right. Mm-hmm. This was that you know the 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 Yanukovych disaster. This is not like a, a, a sort of normal democratic election. So that's why. These things aren't exact parallels. I mean, the United States interfering in other places, you know, tends to be in places where it's not that democratic and they're looking for a different outcome. But that's not always true. Right. It's I mean, the hacking of Angela Merkel's phone, et cetera. We do it, too, is not. A an argument, but it's contextual. Yes, and it's one fact, should sure. it's, it's it's fact, and it should contextualize this. Is that the thing about about the CIA and about DIA and and our alphabet soup of intelligence agencies is they do intelligence work, but they also do counterintelligence work, right? Mm-hmm. So that that they're I mean they probably are sitting back in their Barca loungers laughing and saying, these people, I mean, this is every election cycle. We're looking for people who are trying to influence the outcome of our elections, local, you know, state, uh, federal, doesn't matter, trying to affect policy, trying to like have a drink with a lawmaker, some or some cutout in between to try to get them to, you know, hey, can you not do some bit of legislation that calls the Armenian genocide a genocide? You know, the Turks are working, everyone is working to have their Interest represented in Washington, D.C., it is a nest of spies, right? The fact that they were doing this, I love turning on MSNBC or CNN or, you know, not Fox now, but they have their own set of problems, In watching people hyperventilate and say, can you believe this attack on our democracy? Yes, I can, because, mm-hmm. I, the, you know, the Cheka started in 1917, and Felix Dzerzhinsky, if he could have a tapped line into American elections, he would have done the same thing. The common turn was the communist international. It was to spread revolution and affect policies in another country. This, particularly as it as as we see this through the lens of Russia, is not only not new, it's really old, right? Super Does it make old. it okay? No, I mean, you and should guard be, against this and stuff. And it used
1: to be a lot worse. It used to be a lot worse. People were actually on the payroll to a degree. So, fake Don't, documents. We, I mean, I'll tell everybody a good book to read is that there. it's a
2: two-volume set. Um, they're big, big, two big fat volumes from the late 90s, early 2000s mm-hmm. of a great historian from Cambridge University uh, called Christopher Andrew, who actually wrote an a, a official history of MI5 too. And he wrote a book with a guy named uh, Vasily Matrokin who ended up c- copying the notes from the KGBR, uh, copying documents by hand, and then spiriting them out of Russia after the fall of communism and what was contained in that was amazing. And one of the things that in the second volume of that called The World Was Going Our Way, which it, people forget actually was true in the 1970s. There was a point where about 50 percent of the governments in the, United, in the world were sympathetic to Moscow or in Moscow's orbit. And during that time, there are examples of writers These people, like if there was Twitter at the time when that book came out, it would have been a different thing. 60 Minutes actually did a piece on it at the time. Writers who were compromised by by the KGB, stories, black propaganda stories that were successfully planted all across the West. Mm -hmm. The Russians were very good at this stuff. They would drop a document and it would be, you know, laundered through sympathetic. And we talked about this one time on the show that the JFK conspiracies began with Moscow. The first CIA conspiracy about the JFK assassination was a book published in New York City I don't know if anyone's ever really pointed this out. Maybe they have somewhere. There's a lot of books about the JFK conspiracy. It was published in New York City by a communist front, uh, a, a Moscow front publishing company. And they had vested interests because at the time, Lee Harvey Oswald had visited Moscow, had married a Russian woman, had lived there, had defected, had visited the Russian embassy in Mexico City prior to coming back and shooting the president. Which is why- And app- hey,
1: we want to get the heat off us. We didn't do it. The right wing atmosphere they in Dallas. Yeah,
2: exactly. Really. That's what a bunch does. of nonsense that is. But, you know, the, the point is, is that over a very, very long span of time, and if we're going to say, as we often do, well, Vladimir Putin cut his teeth in the KGB. He's a KGB man through and through. He was in East Germany, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, sure. That's true. And I think the FSB is honeycombed with people who really learned their tradecraft in the KGB. OK, so let's not be surprised when the exact same thing continues. It's nothing, nothing new. Nothing.
0: So, can I ask a question sort of related to this? The last year, Congress forced President Trump to accept this sanctions bill. Um, It was overwhelmingly supported by virtually every member of Congress. And the, there was a signing statement because there are some some constitutional questions um, about. The, I mean, you don't force a president to sign a bill. Well, I mean, I'm saying forced in the sense that they passed it had, overwhelmingly. Had he not, and he had he proved, not passed it, yeah. um, had he not signed this thing, they would have actually overridden him. Um, and passed it anyways. And at the time, he was, as he is now, awash in all of these allegations of his uh, co-option uh, by the Russian government. So it makes it a little difficult to to turn down a sanctions bill. So in either case, this week, um, there was an expectation that we might actually be getting some sanctions um, instead No sanctions have showed up yet. There is a list of nefarious actors, um, although the list that the Trump administration produced, uh, they apparently cribbed from a Forbes 2017 list of the wealthiest Russians. It appears that (laughs) by the way, it's a totally fair overlap. The guideline that they used (laughs) mostly mostly fair. But the the guideline that they use is if you are worth more than a billion dollars. Yeah probably co-opted by Putin working That's alongside right. Putin yeah. and you made the naughty list yeah. of course there there appear to be some ex- exceptions as and Mikhail
2: Khodorkovsky could tell you if you make a lot of money and don't toe the line you end up in prison so, yeah yeah, it's yeah probably true
0: so, well there there are some Russian experts um, who are saying well there are some there, there are plenty of people who are on this list that don't seem to be in favor Uh, in the favor or good graces of the Putin regime or fallen out of favor with the Putin regime. And that the way this list was constructed, one, I mean, just takes the relevance of being included on the list, like out of the equation. There was no expertise on offer except for the good people at Forbes who apparently know how to calculate people's net worth. Um, the, The shortcut appears to be A function of the trump administration not really having the seasoned officials that it needs to do this kind of work which they've had a lot of vacancies and that's been widely reported but the connection i see between sort of this the the passionate outrage that has burst forth, particularly among Democrats, over the lack of action from the Trump administration in terms of enacting these sanctions. And they are defending themselves now, saying that they'll, they'll be coming eventually. But in either case, they're not here yet. Um, I wonder about putting the Russian interference in the election and all of the other bad things that are happening into context and looking at the sanctions is it is it defensible the initial response that the Trump administration gave? We're not doing any additional sanctions. We've done enough already. This list will have a pretty profound effect. Is it legitimate to say that maybe you don't need to do additional sanctions because the the threat wasn't necessarily before like I see is a Matt wanting to say response to me, that's before not he does just one sentence on this uh-huh. is
2: that Keep in mind that the conversation we're having is about additional sanctions <clears throat> and after his election was about how he's going to roll back all the sanctions. Right. And, and he so, hasn't rolled back any. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's some people who are think thinking, you know, with policy in Syria, with, you know, not rolling back sanctions being fairly tough on Putin. And I think they're trying to thread the needle in a particular
0: way here. And when you say policy in Syria, you're referring to the fact that we, yeah. we are effectively opposing the Russians in Syria. We we have – Yeah, there were Russian planes at, at, at that
2: at – that, um, Airfield. At, at that airfield that we sent, sent the Tomahawk, Tomahawk missiles into. Yeah. I mean, it's a, this is not a friendly gesture, right? I yeah. mean, I, I think that the, the Russia policy is so – confused. And so I, I, like, it doesn't surprise me that, that you have a list of people from Forbes, uh, Forbes, by the way, very good job in this stuff. I mean, remember people don't remember, and this is kind of, you know, quite literally one of the first shots in the post-Soviet, you know, attack on the free press is that the American born, um, editor of Forbes, Russia, uh, was shot in the head and, and found, I think, in the Volga River or 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 they close thereby, hmm. they do very good work on Russia. Forbes, I mean, because it's it's the the money nexus. They're actually quite good on that. But I mean, doesn't mean that that's a great a great great thing to do when you're trying to source a list of people. Like if you look at the Magnitsky Act and the list of people who have been banned before, that's really uh, with the work that they did with Bill Browder and people mm-hmm. like that. That's a real kind of serious bit of work. Yeah, it doesn't strike me that they're being serious on any of these issues, and they're just trying to kind of hold back and not, you know, upset the waters in any way, and but also show that they're not kind of slavish to Russia. I mean, you also You're see the Trump administration. The Trump administration. Yeah. Now, you also see this recently um, with North Korea of just complete idiocy on all fronts because they were going to appoint Victor Cha, right. whom I had the great pleasure last year of interviewing at some length in, in, in Washington, D.C. at the at, at Brookings, um, who I, I quite like, and I, I was very, very impressed by. He's a brilliant guy. He's been to North Korea many times. Um, he was very, very popular, right, uh, among South Koreans him
0: as the ambassador, and ambassador. To South Korea. Yeah, and yeah.
2: and like that is a very important position right now. Uh, the, the North, the South Koreans were very excited about this because Cha has a great reputation. His book on North Korea is terrific, and I think it's the Unknown State or something. I think uh, somebody will correct me. I think it was the Unknown State, but it's a terrific book. Brilliant guy they deep six his nomination and the same day or the next day he publishes a op-ed in the Washington Post about the you know bloody the nose theory of North Korea um, mm-hmm. you know just hit him up a little bit with a with a little you know airstrike kind of thing and how dangerous and how how, how silly that is and and Shaw's and no dove i mean Shaw's a serious guy i mean he worked in the bush administration he I think had some differences of opinion with the Bush administration on certain policies, which you can see in his book. But when you have a guy that like we're going to bring in the best people, we're going to bring in the best people. That's what we heard before. And you have some of these people who are really good and temperamentally should be on the side of whatever Republican administration. They're serious people and they're throwing their hands up and being like, these people are, are not serious. I, they I don't talking, know anything
1: about this issue. I was in. Um, they have no interest in learning. I was in uh, Washington this week. Uh, and uh, and talked to someone who was was going to be appointed into the, the Bush administration uh, somewhere. Smart person, you both know him. Uh, and it was all fine. Everyone wanted him to. And then they looked and found that he had had some mildly intemperate things to say about Donald Trump, like in September 2016, completely within the lane of his. But you're saying you're saying somebody that was that that had an appointment in the Bush administration and was going to get. Yeah, that was uh, that was up for a job. Uh, the people who in the Trump administration in the, in the Trump administration. Okay, you said like, Bush. Got it. Sorry, uh, they're all they're all the same. <laughs> yeah, um, that's uh, what
0: I've been saying. Yeah, Matt. no, yeah. yeah, give me an <laughs> argument. <laughs>
1: Uh, It's seeping in (laughs) Speaking of which Do you see that uh, W like uh, Recently his uh, Approval ratings now Are are like 70% Uh Yeah
0: It's unbelievable And and Democratic I remember
1: I remember saying That's why the
0: whole Bush family Probably voted for Trump
1: (laughs) (laughs) I remember saying uh, At the time Like you know In January of 2009 I'm like You you fuckers Won't believe me But Americans Are going to I I can't even imagine How they're going to get there Mm -hmm. But Americans Are going to tell themselves That they missed this guy it, I, I, remember, I, I remember hearing this. I, I, they, did I it, remember, they did it with Nixon. They, they'll do it with anyone. Yeah. And they've done it with him and too. And somebody at the computer, tell
2: me if I'm right over this. I remember that in the Atlantic magazine, Ross Douthat writing a column right after the end of the Bush administration in 2008 that just give it time. He leaves the, 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 the office with the lowest approval ratings, blah, 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 that he'll be loved again for whatever reason. I don't remember his argument, but I remember reading that. As a Ross Douthat thing in Atlanta, in the actual print edition of the magazine, it's funny that you mentioned that. I forgot yeah. about that. so it's going to so, happen to Trump too. So, so
0: the guy, well, had, who, the guy who had I, that uh, wasn't a real prediction. I was, no I was, I was, <laughs> I was
2: joking. It's <laughs> get worse it, every it, time. It, it, it
0: was called "Redeeming W."
2: Is that, that, so I was right. Reaction. I was. I I Voice I, I, I remember. G O D. Wow, I yes. can't believe
0: I remembered that. Yes. With all the drinking and also bad drugs. the name of that book, uh, Fisher.
2: Yeah, the name of that book—you were very close, Moynihan. Uh, it was *The
3: Impossible State*.
0: Impossible State. Impossible
2: State. It's better better Chalk, title. Get that book, by the way. It's a—it's—he's a, actually a pretty a pretty breezy writer for somebody who's like a diplomat, and it's it—it it is everything you need to know about North Korea, and it's a very 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 smart book.
1: So it's a real problem that uh, Trump can't appoint a bunch of people because a bunch of people in the world I've talk talk shat about him a little bit. Yeah. Even if it wasn't personalized, even if it was just like, "Hey, I'm." I follow this policy for this think tank and yeah. on this policy I disagree with candidate Trump yeah. because he's wrong yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is not hard to get there right um that's enough you get disqualified from that and certainly and I'm sure on one hand, um, when you're doing your various documentaries you found this with the foreign policy establishment people there are plenty of people oh, out there who are, who are <laughs> the well, guy I did the documentary with
2: Richard Haas was while we were shooting it there is an article in Politico that Donald Trump was thinking about asking Richard Haas to be, I think, Secretary of State. Holy cow, no, yep. I didn't realize that. Yep. That was that was a political story. And, you know, I might have asked him about this, I might not have. But it's it's <laughs> I'll put it this way. Richard Haas was sass. Richard La- Haas <laughs> was doing a lot of Morning Joe at the time, which during the campaign, has anyone talked? I think it's during the campaign that that was his Fox and Friends. Yeah, and he yeah. Was, very much so. Yeah, and he, was, so he loved, he loved, he loved it, you. right? Yeah. And they it's, loved it, too. They yeah, loved yeah, it, yeah. too, and now they all hate him. But he was, Haas was on a lot talking about foreign policy, <laughs> exactly. and then all of a sudden I saw in Politico Richard Haas, you know, on the short list, and it's like, yeah, that's not going to work. I mean, Richard Haas is... A disciple of George H. W. Bush, he venerates George H. W. Bush, and this is not a George H. W. I mean George H. W. Bush voted for Hillary
1: Clinton. He said, like, "Well, I mean, yeah. that's,
0: take the job, take the job, and live yeah. your principles."
1: No, but that's a that, that's yeah. a it's an actually interesting thing, Moynihan. I, I think really. that. There is That's this – you get fired. There's this gap True. in between Ron Paul foreign policy, sort of the Camille-tard uh, foreign policy ideas. Huh. huh. Look at that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I just huh. want to see if he was awake, and boy, he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's alert. He's got, um, he's got crushed all over his fucking face. And then, like, neocon stuff <laughs> – and then sort of Samantha Power's, you know, uh, uh, responsibility pr- to protect liberal internationalism stuff. Which overlaps with the H.W. stuff in a lot Very of ways, mu- yeah. uh, uh, and, and then realism. Realism as a foreign policy doctrine, and there is, you know, it's Richard Haas, it's uh, George Schultz, it's other Brent people. Brent Scowcroft. It vanished. Like it, it, the, the, that, that lane got so narrow and small. And some of the people who were uh, excited about... Uh, prospects of Trump. People like KT McFarland, she considers herself a realist. I saw uh, uh, KT uh, do a a, a panel at CPAC three years ago about how realism needs to come back in foreign policy. Uh, So there were some people who self-identify as realists, regardless of their quality uh, and and a bunch of other things, um, who were getting excited about Trump because they saw in him that he's not full Ron Paul. He's not going to go totally there. However, he is a critic of a lot of these large scale interventions and correctly in my view, uh, describes them as disasters. And so therefore he might be this path to a new realism. And I think it's a totally undercovered uh, thing in Washington right now because everyone's just sort of a black and white, hate him, love him, goofball, terrible person, whatever. Um, But like where the realists are kind of reforming. But one problem that they have is especially the ones like Richard Haas, who are pedigreed, who are at the various, uh, you know, institutes and things like that, is that if you're talking constantly about foreign policy uh, and you're grappling with a candidate Trump, you're going to criticize him because he will invariably say something that is asinine in addition to having instincts that, in my view, are good sometimes as well. And so your name gets on the on the he's being asinine document. You're out of it. Yeah. So I think that there's an entire batch of realists in Washington who would have and could have worked in the foreign policy team. He can't staff anybody that's why he's mm-hmm. got to get rando Rex Tillersons. The fuck is Rex Tillerson, right? Um, and that I, there, there is such a huge personnel problem. I believe he was State previously Department.
2: the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts.
1: But <laughs> <I> don't <laughs> quote me on that. Maybe Anthony mm-hmm. can correct me. Well, but the thing about the realist stuff,
2: I interviewed um, Bill Kristol. Which I was pretty interested in because he's become like the liberal darling on Twitter, and I mean seriously, mm-hmm. like all these liberals are like love Bill Crystal now. Woke and Bill Crystal
1: is woke Bill Crystal something to is
2: something to behold. And he said to me, and I might have mentioned this before, uh, that he said to me during it during the interview, uh, which was pretty interesting because he like Bill's a very smart guy, and you disagree with him a lot, but he's he's interested in having a conversation, especially now. Mm. And he said, well, you know, I really wish. He was slagging off the Republican Party. And he said, I really wish that there was a place for me in the Democratic Party. This was in the Weekly Standard headquarters that, mm. we, that we shot this interview. Mm.
1: And he's no um, longer the editor-in-chief. What, what uh, month is this?
2: November, October?
1: Of just this past yeah, year? Yeah, just this
2: past year. Okay, cool. Um, and he said, like, I, you know, and he's making a Scoop Jackson uh, reference in a way. I would be happy in the Democratic Party if they were like me on foreign policy. And I'm like... So part of me is like, well, you know, kind of the Obama administration kind of was in a way, yeah. but it's not enough for him. But the funny thing is I, I said to him, I said, God, I remember coming to DC and God, I don't know what year that was, probably 2007, six, seven, six, seven, seven eight, something like that. And it was like probably six or seven, probably six, maybe like, seven, let's just say it's six or seven. And the foreign policy world was just end to end neoconservatism. Mm -hmm. These guys were in power. You went to Morton's Steakhouse and you saw like everybody was a neocon on if there was like a foreign policy contingent in there. And I said to him, look, if you were to tell me 10 years later, I would come back and you, who were the toast of the town, you were running the show, you know, Iran policy was going to be set by people like you and Syria policy, et cetera that you would be in the wilderness, deep in the wilderness, without a GPS device, trying to find a Democratic Party that would give you a little sliver of space to call it your home, I would think you were bananas. That said, the the foreign policy establishment in in D.C. now is not what these psychopaths who are not anti-interventionist, like isolationist types who really are isolationist types, not anti-interventionist. There's, there's a difference. That were really bullish on Trump and still are. And they're like, well, you know, we're upset about the Syria thing, but it was just flexing muscle and he didn't do anything else. Okay, fair enough, fine. And all, But these guys really don't have a lot of power because if you talk to people in the world of Trump alt-right, not like Nazi alt-right, but like uh, Gateway Pundit types, the, the Breitbart types... Um, they're really unhappy Mm -hmm. because they, they have a phrase and I heard this for six months, had a phrase, the generals, the generals,
1: we hate the generals. I saw Steve Bannon talk a couple months back and that's exactly what he was doing. I
2: guess they're getting getting it from his Skip Kelly, et cetera. The generals, this, and Trump is under the spell of the generals. And right now, there's a kind of homelessness of everybody in the Republican foreign policy establishment in D.C. because the anti-interventionist types aren't winning, really. There's a, the generals that they hate so much, but they're at the whim and the vicissitudes of Donald Trump's you know, thought that morning. Did he see a picture of, of uh, Afghan women wearing long pants? And does that mean that he's going to send troops in, et cetera? The thing that's interesting about it is it seems to me that this would be a moment that playing the long game, or even a kind of convincing short game, that the realists would actually have a pretty good opportunity.
3: It's worth noting that that alt-right uh, generals' obsession you talk about is is also that the generals are somehow controlled by the globalists, including George Soros and the Rothschilds, which is of course. Oh, a cons- you mean they're anti-Semitic? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's a
2: conspiracy as old as time. But 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 it's the uh, one person it, who made the general comment to me was Jewish. By the
3: way, yeah, just for the record, interesting.
0: I don't know if the. The realist school is is truly homeless part of what i was trying to ask perhaps inelegantly before is if the, the maybe current panic aren't. related to the russia hysteria that leaves democratic members of congress demanding a forceful muscular response to russia and virtually one,
1: one that they were absolutely uninterested uh-huh. that... in uh, between 2009 yes. and 2016. Sure,
0: yeah, yeah. How quickly, how quickly things changed. But
1: they were interested in it, yeah. to be sure. How quickly things changed in 2008. Yeah, because uh, the uh, Russian invasion of Georgia happened right before the DNC in 2008, uh-huh. and Joe Biden was like John McCaining. He was like, "We're all Georgians." Yeah. Well, the question, I mean, the question, I'm, and this, this is, policy, but this is the right? question
0: I'm asking. I mean, how far are they from being willing to support proxy or even direct? intervention in a situation that brings us, that puts the United States in sharp opposition to Russian interests someplace where we risk some sort of broader conflict. I I mean, what does that take? And and, and I I want to say, well, the Korean peninsula, not just there, Syria, where the United States has put, placed additional troops and where Rex Tillerson, not so long ago, um, when everyone was distracted by shithole gate and the, the, the looming government shutdown, which proved to not be particularly dramatic, um, articulated his what five point plan for how we will essentially stay in Syria forever. Um, This is a problem, Um, but we also put more troops into Afghanistan. Most of the places where the United States has interests in the Middle East, as the United States defines those interests, we are in opposition to sort of Russian interests. I I wonder how things evolve and where Democrats find themselves from a foreign policy standpoint, and at what point it becomes a situation where they're actually interested in like pursuing some of these conflicts because we absolutely have to. We know who the enemy is. We know what the enemy is willing to do.
1: I think that it's a toothless kind of bluster, not unlike that of John Bolton under uh, Obama. Hmm. And I just say his name because we talked about with him a lot uh, about various things. And I remember was it doing Syria um, or or uh, I think it was Syria. Or, or it could have been North Korea, even uh, it's it, uh, uh, no, it wasn't Libya, uh, but it was a, a more modern, I think it was Syria in that. We had him on the independence and we uh, were like, okay, dude, what would you do right now? You're president. Mm-hmm. What would you do? Are you going to, are we really going to go to war at Syria? And he's like, well, what I would have done is have a no fly zone five years ago. like, no, no you, you can't like go back in time. And And ultimately it got to a place that the thing that he would do wasn't that materially different from the inaction that he was criticizing Obama at the time. Uh-huh. A, I think there's a widespread acknowledgment, grudging as it might be uh, at any given time by the party who is not in power of the presidency when they're, when they're busting the president's chop, wh- chops, whoever it is, for not being tough enough. That the tough that is described by like we're actually gonna go to war with lots of people is just not really an option right now. But isn't it?
0: But but when you say it's toothless, I mean the the difficulty with the no-fly zone is that in implementing it, the the potential for a broader conflict that we find ourselves in inadvertently is amplified. And what I'm what I'm asking here is, are we not Seeing the conditions being created, where Democrats now are in favor, like strongly in favor of some of these policies, that you know, it seems like, oh well, this is a reasonable inoculation, a a no-fly zone. Yeah, but I would say, I I would say this is that it's what 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 the Russians don't want us to do. It's what you've said a lot, Camille, about Trump is
2: you know, don't Mm -hmm. listen to the rhetoric, watch the policy kind Mm -hmm. of thing because he says a lot of crazy. There, there, I think that the George um, W. Bush years, are anomalous anomalous uh, because of 9-11. And remember that George W. Bush in 2000 was running on more of a bring America home platform, particularly about the Balkans, right? Yeah, and so running, no nation building.
1: And no, running no. against an interventionist.
0: And r- exactly. That's, that's the only time the non-interventionists have ever ever seemingly even had a, a, yeah, a well, great deal of influence. Really, it was rhetorical. It's funny. It's
2: always rhetorical.
0: <laughs> yeah, It's always rhetorical because- And it was what, Obama too. It was it's
2: true. For Obama also too. rhetorical. So that's the point that I'm making here is that is that there are- sort of moments in history that are so unique like 911 that you get the war in Afghanistan and then ultimately the war in Iraq and this uh, this people were remember Americans were very supportive of both of these conflicts at the beginning of both of them, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Afghanistan had the longest war that we've ever fought and no end in sight. Remember that book and that film, No End in Sight about Iraq? No End in Sight, that book and, and film should have been about Afghanistan. But there is a, a, a stasis that you get in foreign policy, right? What Obama did for eight years, what the first year of Trump has been and what I suspect the next four years of Trump or next three years of Trump will be And whatever the administration is after that will all be about the same. It's it's America is not retreating, but it's not, you know, firing up the engines.
1: There was a uh, to to interrupt, but also to amplify. There's a tweet and I forget who did it uh, in the wake of the State of the Union address. Uh, whose treatment of foreign policy was kind of this ambiguous uh, muddle. And I would be curious to hear what Camille uh, thinks about what he heard uh, from uh, from Trump on Tuesday. But the uh, the more or less the tweet was along the lines like America no longer has a foreign policy. It has a series of ongoing reactions to events in places uh oftentimes reactions to stuff it did and just can't seem to stop you know doing mm-hmm. um and i think there's <laughs> a lot of truth to that and as camille and i were talking about before uh the we started turning on the microphones um like you want to nod in vigorous agreement like yeah man you really nailed trump and Except, obama yeah and, <laughs> and a bunch of people going but isn't going that i mean isn't that the foreign policy
2: that I think most people want these days is the case-by-case foreign policy. And yeah, foreign policy is always case-by-case. I don't. I kind of don't. But, but, well, here's the counter argument I would say, and I'm not making this argument myself, but I'm just saying that I know you hate this phrase and hate this term, but the case-by-case foreign policy and I think that anybody who's thinking about this a little bit would say, yeah, well, isn't that mostly American foreign policy? Is that, you know, the bomb, you know, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, you know, brings us, well, we were kind of lurching towards that anyway. We kind of wanted that to happen, wanted to get involved in war in Europe. Whoa. Oh, no, 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 no no, 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 not, no, 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 uh like old I- issues of Reason Magazine should be ashamed of the of <laughs> wrong.
0: Don't,
2: don't fuck with me because I'll go back at you. Um, but
0: 1976 e- was a tough year for a lot of tough people. Tough year for a lot of people, particularly
2: bearded weirdos with enormous ladies' frames glasses that were <laughs> editing Reason Magazine. Not but that there's anything wrong not with there's that. there's
0: anything wrong with that. I'm
2: getting the vapors. But 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 here's but I think the difference is do you want to run a foreign policy based on an idea? Or do you want to base it on individual incidents? Because the idea is something like American exceptionalism. That's an idea, right? And you have a lot of these guys that jaw-jaw about American exceptionalism is that we must do something during the Green Revolution in Iran. What? What should we do? I don't know. Because the Trump administration was faced with a very, very, a a smaller version of that. micro-similar. A micro-similar version where people are being arrested, people are protesting in the streets. What do you do? You run in there with guns, but crazy. No, that's abso- absolute madness with the Obama administration. There was an enormous split in the administration with regards to Ukraine because Samantha Power, our ambassador at the UN, miss, you know, problem from hell. Her book about, you know, we have to get in there when bad things are happening. She is thanked in Barack Obama's, uh, memoir. I think in the first couple of pages, there's a thank you to Samantha Power. They're very close old friends. And they had a very big disagreement about this, which she was very shy about talking about with me because, you know, now's the time when you you're burnishing Obama's image for Mount Rushmore. But they had a huge <laughs> issue because she was like, we need to arm people. We need to do it now. And even something like that, which is pretty low impact from, you know, the Past 15 years of American foreign policy, boots on the ground in all these places, even people getting killed in Niger, right? I mean, it's pretty low impact by comparison. Of giving people by, their, by comparison. Good. Yeah, by, by, by comparison. Yeah. Giving people weapons and arms to defend themselves against an invading force in, you know, the Donbass or whatever. And that was controversial. And that that came to a head in the administration. So I mean, it's it foreign pol American foreign policy now. The thing that's interesting is it doesn't, there maybe need a new term for it because it doesn't fit under the old terms. Of realism, Mm neoconservatism, you know, um, uh, uh, not America, America firstism doesn't even make sense with with uh, Trump, Um, uh, American greatness and, um, you know, the uniqueness of the American experience that we have to project abroad, that stuff, none of it that I can think of, not only with the Trump administration, which you'd expect because the schizophrenia of what Trump believes about things is something we, we, we're, we're used to. And of course, last person to talk to him kind of thing. And that's the foreign policy. Mm-hmm. But the same thing is also true about the, the Obama administration. And the last point is the Eli Lake, who's been, we've mentioned him a couple episodes in a row. Um, and Eli wrote a piece for the New Republic and i think 2008 when obama was elected saying that look we might get a sort of reaganite foreign policy out of obama which was not an interventionist foreign policy remember i mean the invasion of afghanistan we were funding people to fight the the invading Soviets. Some of those people were pretty bad people. The Mujahideen morphed into something pretty awful. We didn't Mm. really foresee that. But we were also- Unintended consequences. Unintended consequences. We were Mm. also, you know, there was, we didn't ourselves do it, but mining of the harbor in, in Nicaragua. We were funding rebels and to fight other rebels in Central America. It was going to be that kind of foreign policy. And I think that he was kind of right about that seeing it again, that like Obama was here's, not here's, you know, a, here's you, d- d- Am I wrong? <laughs> am I
1: crazy? You're, you I think you're, you're half wrong. You're, you're half right. Uh, I would yeah, say, that's nice I'm, I'm being, uh, I'm being generous. Um, and I I say this with a, with a schizophrenic qualification of that. I think um because of the end of the cold war and the timing of it all, we all overestimate Reagan and his contributions, especially to that. Uh, and then all I, underestimate him because I went to school in Santa Barbara when the when Santa Barbara was the Western White House. And so we all hated him so much that it, it colors my view. And he was a governor of California and not particularly good at it um, uh, at, uh, at a time of a lot of campus unrest. So I have a very schizophrenic view on Reagan. A thing that he did well, and this is something that I was re-reminded of because this is the State of Union address a week. I always go back through and look at the uh, comps uh, of of the State of the Union address, right? So this was, uh, you know, Trump's one-year anniversary. So, okay, let's look at the one-year anniversary of presidents who were speaking at a time that wasn't like a super cataclysmic moment. 2002 is the comp for George W. Bush. Okay, we can't talk about that because it's obviously going to be all 9-11, FDR, 1934. Let's throw those aside. What are the comps? Uh, So uh, Reagan in 82 is a comp. Uh, JFK in 62 is also... Like that, and every time I do this exercise, and I do it every year, and that's because it's fun, um, every time I'm you're hit, you're struck by how there are two presidents in the last hundred years who could give a goddamn, who could write and give a goddamn speech. It was Reagan and JFK. Everyone else is just garbage in comparison. The rhetoric, the Do you know ideas. who wrote
2: uh, Reg's, I don't think Peter Robinson was around at that time. Maybe he might've been, but uh, do you know who wrote the 82 speech? No. Yeah. It'd be interesting to
3: know.
1: Uh, I, I don't. Is it a, it's a good speech though. I mean, there, the, he, there's, a, there's a sense of assuredness and an understanding of America's example, and yet a humbleness of it. The thing that Reagan did really well, that I would like to see done well by anti-interventionists, by realists, by anyone else, by Obama, I would have liked to see it better in, in during the Green Revolution. I think he struggled with this at the time is, and I think Eisenhower probably did this pretty well. Uh, Moynihan would know better than I would on this, um, but um, it's possible to express a total solidarity with people who are undergoing repression without at all giving them money or weapons. Without like, I mean, we didn't give significant anything to the poor bastards in Poland in 1981 who were cracked down uh, by the Soviet Union or by uh, Poland's own, own people there at the time. Uh, we didn't, but there was no doubt where our sympathies l- lay at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a problem a lot of hardcore anti-interventionists, when they see a people being repressed and when they see a Washington that is, uh, is gearing itself up to feel sympathy for those people, they get the antenna out. Dude, like, I Whoa. just don't
0: know that there are many instances where a Washington has felt sympathy without projecting power in some way. Oh, my God. God. My God. Unintended I consequences. And, and, yeah. let me, and let me yeah. do this because earlier we talked about Camille Tard, Paul Tard, foreign policy. No one said
2: Camille Tard. Uh, actually, Matt said exactly Oh, yeah. wow. Did he? Should yeah, we fire him?
0: He, yeah. No, we don't have to. No, um, this is a great term. But it's always important. It's always important <laughs> to steal- it's always important it's to word. steal, man. And I'm going to def- define Camille Tard, or perhaps <laughs> we should call it Jeffersonian Uh-oh. foreign policy for you. Jeff Tard. Th- this non- <laughs> non-interventionism is placing a priority on defining sort of shared economic interests with as many people as possible and recognizing that there are frequently, often, nearly always... Just plain old always unintended consequences to foreign interventions, it, it, military interventions in various outs, in various other places.
1: So so um, far we don't so, disagree even a tiny so bit. So stated.
0: Right. And the stated purpose of a policy may in fact be virtuous and good. The actual outcomes are another thing entirely that i think often of, by the way they're just consequences that sort of sane by the way. Re- well i don't know if they're just uh, consequences i, I think, think that, that a lot of I people with the unintended. exception of Iraq, that a lot of people understand
2: the consequences of these things as they develop and before they're developing i don't the i think, the, I think the american, I think weapons the american to certain people, people
0: that they expect that they'll be Taking fire from those same weapons, like several years later. In Iraq, I don't know that you the mean? not just in Iraq. I mean, I'd say in Afghanistan, we find ourselves fighting with fighting against people in who we train some ways. and put in That's the power. this true. is true. I'm yeah. uh, agreed, and it's complicated, and I'm 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 acknowledging all of the complexity. I don't think the non-interventionist position is that you never fight. It's that you are primarily interested in equipping a military to fight defensive wars because the understanding is that war is hell. Not just that it's ugly and awful, but that its consequences are are incredibly difficult to predict in any sort of pre- precise way. Again, it's going we, to be we nec- have messy. We haven't disagreed awful. on a syllable. Yeah. So, so but this is what I'm saying. But that is my perspective on foreign policy. And if that means that in any given conversation uh, about a potential intervention i am always looking for reasons not to do it you damn right like that's the but that's the way but it's the way I, but it's, but it's I, right the that, way he that works he got his and, back and up. and here's to what me i'm saying now. and here's what i'm saying though <laughs> at
1: my rhetor- let's think- be rhetorically in let's be rhetorically in solidarity with people who are who are facing re- repression, uh-huh. and I get that speech from Camille. No, and but That's the reason what what I, what I said was is. what I
0: said ah, was it? I don't know that there are many fight, instances fight, fight. where we have only rhetorically supported people. That is what I said. Oh wait, and wait, wait, then wait, wait, wait. I offered my Camille? my condemnation Camille? of your earlier critique of me. Hold on.
2: Yeah. I'm just going to crack my knuckles there Good. for a second. All right, let's go into this. Go th- this would be a quick thing here. Every time I say, yeah. like I'm arguing with somebody, last yeah. point. Never, one, lie, one one sentence, line, never yeah. the last go point. One, never one sentence. Lie. Yeah, oh. well, that was kind of one sentence. Yeah. Um, I think that when you, th- I think you'd be surprised to find, this is the anti-Chomsky in me. I had the pro-Chomsky in me before. Surprised to find how often... The United States um, has rhetorically supported and done nothing in situations sure. that otherwise, if you look at the rhetoric that, pre- rhetoric that preceded those situations, you would assume, like, like the way that people talked about it. The biggest one, the very famous one, is Hungary in 1956 mm-hmm. when the Soviets rolled tanks and. Czech Republic, uh, Czechoslovakia in 1968, uh-huh. there was a huge disappointment. There's a big historical controversy over 56 in Hungary. There's a Hungarian radio-free Europe who mm-hmm. uh, was broadcasting stuff that we're going to come to save you. And they, there's this there's enormous amount of interesting stuff on this because the Eisenhower administration had no intention of doing so mm-hmm. and national review at the time which is a nascent magazine in 56 criticized and hated eisenhower and always hated eisenhower because of things like this the same thing is true in poland in 81. same thing is true in poland in 1972 uh, a repression that is often forgotten about i totally forgot about yeah it. i mean it's it happened, and there was an anti-semitic repression in 1968 where Basically, every Jew who could get out of Poland ended up in Sweden and Norway and Denmark.
1: Didn't National Review like bust Reagan in the face for being like uh, insufficiently com- commentary, particularly? Yeah, uh, yeah. that
2: busted Reagan for not. I mean, look, even even the Bay of Pigs was like, don't do it with American troops, do it with these the ragtag band of Cubans because it's mm-hmm. going to cause a lot of problems there. And the the desperation for air support that never came, and the second
0: kind of go there. Look, the, uh, are it, you saying that's a situation where we weren't doing things? No, we no, only, it's not that we weren't okay. doing no, things. But
1: Budapest, Hungary in 56, but, totally no, I'm just, I'm sure. just saying Czechoslovakia that, in 68, totally. Yeah. And they, the expressions of, 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 of sympathy and support that people felt, even though in Budapest, there were some who felt like, ah, oh, you, you, you you, bat, you you But still, but, so yeah. the idea that we that we supported them and they knew that yeah, even without moral... giving them stuff yeah. meant a lot to those people. And yeah. I think is, is, is No,
2: I, I think there are two tracks here and I'm uh-huh. kind
1: of conflating the two and I
2: shouldn't is that to your point, you're right, is that yeah? you know, 56, 68 throughout the Cold War. Uh-huh. There's a lot of examples of us supporting people in word but not deed, sometimes inward and deed and then uh-huh. a combination of the two. But there was always a reluctance to put American boots on the ground, where in 2002, 2001, after 9-11, it was like, what's going to be next? Away. Syria, what's going to be next? Iran, right. American troops are going to sweep across. There, There has always been a reluctance. And I'm not saying that this is a defense of American policy by funding people that we shouldn't have been funding, arming Uh people that we shouldn't have been arming, et cetera. But you know, that in the geopolitics of it, it's never in isolation, right? It's always the sense that, you know, God, America was, was, uh, you know, funding X Y and Z we can't forget about Vietnam by the way but X funding X Y and Z mm-hmm. um and then of course on the ground there the Soviets were doing the same thing the Soviets were training the Stasi was training the Nicaraguan uh, right. interrogators it was providing where do you think all those guns came from where do you think all the semtex you know bombs came from from anyone from the IRA to the Bader-Meinhof gang to the to to the Libyans But I shouldn't mean, more intelligence. intelligence
1: as a Cold War freak shouldn't we have taken the early '90s breakout of peace, which is unprecedented ever, sure. um, as a great learning lesson. Yes. yes, like we we pulled out, they pulled out. In fact, they pulled out more than we pulled out for yeah. the most part. Um, but they had they're more of an occupier than we were for, by a lot. Um, but like the breakout of peace that happened when we weren't funding these proxy wars in Central America and Africa, and they weren't either, um, was so great that
0: w- weren't or couldn't
1: whatever yeah 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 uh, <laughs> uh it was so great that i think and yeah it's a it it's a long and complicated story and yugoslavia is the big problem it's the big bogey and all of this kind of stuff because that was when that began we didn't want to be that guy and after yeah. like after four right. after four years of picking off grandma from the uh, from the the hillside uh in sarajevo we're like dude you, you really need us to be that guy it. We'll be that guy um, that I think changed a Vietnam, lot of yeah. geopolitics. It was the Spanish civil war uh, on some level. That's what the Samantha powers generation sure. was, was viewing it as. And I, and I understood that at the time. Um, but like in, in doing that, and assuming that mantle, we forgot that lesson, which is that um, we shouldn't be the ones funding. I don't think we should fund Ukraine. I mean, I, I have nothing but sympathy for Ukraine. I despise Russia uh, with all of my heart uh, and, uh, and despise their, uh, aggressive country swallowing ways. Um, I don't think that we should be giving rebels guns, generally speaking anywhere. I don't think that we should be applying sanctions, except if it's better than a Forbes list uh, <laughs> on individuals who we know are bad guys. That makes sense out a yeah. country. That doesn't make sense. It's mm-hmm. bad. You're pun- penalizing the country and it's usually, uh, helping out the rulers, uh, but we've kind of like we don't have that muscle anymore. It's like we need to have a stick, and that is one of the sticks that we use. And that, and and we forget the benefits that come. From relaxing, but I, but even, that was even, in the, way, face, even I know in the face that,
0: of slaughter. I know
2: that anybody who's listening to this will say, "Well, what about this and what about that?" And of course, you can't cover all. Of course, all in yeah, a yeah, we can. We can ninety second. We thing. can argue and Vietnam it all is anecdotes. obviously a, sure. an example that I didn't talk about, which was a calamitous uh, decision by the Americans, and and a decision, by the way, in which uh, the Soviet Union, which was was funding. And arming um North Vietnam uh, decided to stay out of and not to. And the same thing is true, you Angola, you know, the Sv- Svavimbi nonsense, all this stuff is a million examples over the world. And when it got to a point at which it was just an enormous chessboard and it was disastrous. But the 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 bigger issue, and you're not talking about individual um examples, when you're talking, not talking about Vietnam, or you're not talking about Nicaragua, when you talked about Reagan. The interesting thing is was the disconnect between Reagan's rhetoric and the evil empire. Remember, I don't know if you remember this Reagan standing in Red Square when he did his visit to Moscow with Gorbachev, and somebody asked him. I think it was a CBS correspondent said, "Mr. Reagan is uh, is the Soviet Union, or where you're standing, still the evil, evil empire." And I think that speech was 82 or 83 at a... Wouldn't
1: have a, been with Gorbachev then.
2: No, no, the speech, the evil empire speech, I mean. Yeah, It was 82 or yeah. 83 at a evangelical conference, I believe in Florida. and He's totally right. They're in...
1: Totally evil empire.
2: Uh, and it was, and at that point he said... I don't remember what the exact phrase. I, and it was something like, well, you know, times have changed, right? Something like that. <laughs> but at Reykjavik and at all these he things. He had a
1: closet Reagan in person. I he said, it wasn't he bad. He no.
2: said, you're talking about another time, another era. That's right. Talking about another time, another era. I was close. Um, impressive. I, but, but the funny thing about it is that there's a guy named Paul Leto, I think, L-E-T-T-O-W, who wrote a book about Reagan's um, hatred of nuclear weapons which is influenced by Patty and all this stuff and he'd always hated nuclear weapons. And he, and there's a really good kind of almost academic book about this and at at Reykjavik he appalled everyone around him by wanting to give away the farm. They were like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Right,
1: that's when National Stop Review it, were like yeah. you, you And so I mean the
2: rhetoric, rhetoric was evil empire, you know, boycotting Olympics, you know, really really that's the when people think of the Cold War they think of you know Now, people think that they don't think of Alger Hiss and and this sort Mm -hmm. of thing, they think of the 80s and they think that's why the Americans, the show is set in the 80s. That's the hot time of the Cold War. The negotiations of Reagan himself and some some people within the administration were not conciliatory really until the Gorbachev uh, regime started in 85. But around that time, there is still that hatred of nuclear weapons in that sense that we should make a deal. There was, you know, if people had known what was going on within the interior of the administration, this, and by the way, this is on top of funding, you know, Contras, right? I think- Until Congress tells them not to, and then doing it illegally, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and doing all the stuff that they're funding in Angola, all these other places. There's still a broad instinct to, and funding the Mujahideen too, at the time when it seemed right, which was the Gorbachev time, was to tip it in that direction. And it's really funny to look at Reykjavik as this moment where the real hardliners and the real hawks around him were like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Don't do this. Don't give away the farm. Don't give away SDI, Star Wars, you know, all that stuff.
0: I think the the particular anecdotes that you brought up, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, just in a literal way, um, are are certainly true. And the Cold War primer that you just offered is useful and instructive. Very incomplete by the grandpa. Sure, sure. But Cramble. in a in a in a post nine eleven world,
1: wait, um, very different. Do the, you remember the Cold War at all? Like you have? I, I do. Really? I do.
0: Yeah, yeah. I used to drew, draw pictures of like Russia and the USSR, and they were like firing things. Yeah, missile yeah, command. Draw the yeah. whole thing. Scramble. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I remember. Who's Everything else was on? in documentaries. Fucking the Congress. USSR, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and Paul more Ro- letters and Records there. on? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But but in a post-9-11 world, in a world where, you know, and the current iteration of the war on terror is um, the Trump administration's policy of partners, not perfection. And there are very few places where our allies in the struggle against global terror... Um, to, that was my W, which is not very good. No, but um, I got it. But in I the struggle it. against global terror, we are aligning ourselves with pretty nasty characters in most cases where we're sort of expressing our sympathies or, or talking about our partners. We're unwilling, we are literally explicitly unwilling to condemn them for their various human rights violations. That's pretty much the policy of this administration and prior administrations as well, but perhaps to a lesser extent. Saudi Arabia. Yes. And we are <laughs> yes. yeah. and we are. Very much totally. providing material support in virtually—I don't want to say virtually every context, because we're not giving weapons to the Swiss without, without money or anything, but there is no doubt that we are cooperating with, that we are carrying out drone strikes in many places where we have undeclared wars, that there are plenty of countries with whom we have made partnerships or formed found— um decided to have common cause with say the Saudis in the their conflict with Yemen in order to tr- achieve some strategic objective in terms of checking Iranian power like i when i say i don't think there are many places where the U- united states is merely expressing its sentimental sort of attachment for someone and saying we support you in a modern contemporary context where we're actually focusing Attention in a serious way in any other part of the world, I think it's hard to say that we're focusing our attention there without actually getting involved in material ways. And even when it's Niger. We, have a, foreign, it's just we a have a foreign policy in every country.
2: We have a foreign policy in every country, and I think Matt's examples, and I think Hungary is a great example of this. And the Cold War is very different. And I agree with that, and I think that you're right that 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 you know we are on the side of a lot of bad guys uh, a lot of times, um, and that of course we can bring that back to Reagan again and to Gene Kirkpatrick, who became Reagan's ambassador to the United Nations, who wrote, who got into the administration. As a Democrat, she was a hawkish Democrat for writing a piece in commentary in I believe 1979 called Dictatorships and Double Standards Mm -hmm. about how one deals in a, at that point, a bipolar world with lots of little other, you know, sort of strands on these these two enormous poles, the United United States and USSR, was that how does one deal without dealing in the African continent? post-colonial Africa mm-hmm, without mm-hmm. dealing with bad people. It's Central America, which is the only country in Central America who hasn't had a Marxist government in the past 50 years is, I believe, Costa Rica. Uh, I, yeah. mean, it's, it's the, I mean, I there's, mean, there's bad people and you have to align with those people. And I'm not saying I agree with this. I agree with some parts of it and not others when Gene Kirkpatrick said this, but the counterfactual for fifth column listeners and send us um, emails and Facebook messages and everything what you think about this, because it's a counterfactual. By its very nature, we we it's it's we have no idea the answer to this question. Mm. But I often wonder, and I my kind of hawkishness on a number of issues has waned significantly over the past sort of decade. Significantly over the past <laughs> decade, seeing the 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 unbelievable consequences of certain American actions, and the unbelievably whole, awesome. Uh, well, yeah, I mean uh, the hopefulness that I had that things would work out better has made me jaded and bitter mm-hmm. and, and 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 quite grumpy about these things. But the question, the counterfactual, is in impossible to answer. What happens if America fully retreats from the world, Mm -hmm. stops funding political parties that are oppressed or in opposition through U.S., you know, USAID, all these things, takes American weapons off the market? You know, for Christ's sake, the Swedes are always being protested because they're giving, you know, Saab jet engines to... People that are bombing the Houthi rebels or whatever these it is these days. The Swedes should be protesting. Yeah, I mean just, just 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 uh, for you know being boring. <laughs> <Okay>. My daughter's <laughs> Swedish, so I'm sorry. She's really she's not, not boring. She's not boring. Not boring. She's a psychopath. I love her, but she's a crazy person. Um, but she's that if you take Michael. if you take all of that off the world stage, uh-huh. it's going to have a destabilizing effect. In what way? I don't know. I mm. don't. know. I mean, we can't tell. But if America retreated from its role in the world, that it's established. Not saying that there's a role in the world that we must proceed with. Mm-hmm. The one that it's currently established. If America picks up sticks and, and gets out of Afghanistan, leaves its materiel there and leaves tomorrow, same thing in Iraq, you know, Donald Trump, Mr. sort of anti-infinish, don't think that Mosul was retaken without significant American involvement. Come the fuck on, right? Out of Iraq, right? We don't do anything to help rebel groups in Syria. might, might not be a bad thing, right? We, do, we don't do anything if there's democracy movements in Iran. Mm-hmm. We pull our funding out for any um, pro-democracy groups in Venezuela. The same thing across the world. Not only do we not make-
1: pretty- Pretty good. I look, good.
2: going Yeah, no, It's it, it, to you it'll sound pretty good and, and to a lot of people it'll sound pretty good. I don't know what it sounds like. Again, counterfactual. But what is, what fills that void? Because I'll give you one example mm-hmm. of what we can expect. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying, again, I don't know the answer to this. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. The second we faltered in Syria, which is a mess that we helped create in Iraq, mm-hmm. and the expectation was in countries like Russia, where the, the apparatus of power and the media is completely, not completely, but 90% controlled. Nobody buys novoya Gazeta. I mean, come on. It's like, you know, 30,000 copies or whatever it is. But what is controlled by the state, 100%, more or less, and the levers of government and the military are controlled by the state. And when they bomb and kill people and they kill civilians and their troops get, get killed, there are no protests. Nobody's protesting in Russia. Nobody is like lining up in the streets, and if they do, it's going to be cracked down pretty quickly. They, there were some brief protests, nothing big in the Chechen wars, the two Chechen wars, mm-hmm. nothing in Georgia, nothing in Ukraine. And there, and That's been actually some, not true.
0: There were some in Ukraine. And there have been some, yeah, more recently. More,
2: more and, recently, and they've, but they've nothing in a mass movement. There's yeah. nothing like the debates we had about Iraq after a couple of years. So when, when they see that we have been affected in the domestic front— by our unbelievably stupid foreign policy in Iraq and the mismanagement of all of that mm-hmm. thereafter, they say, OK, they're not going to do anything. We're going to fill this void. So Russia fills that void in a brutal way. Mm-hmm. And the bodies of many Syrian children and, and and adults can attest to the brutality of the way that Russians have intervened and have actually been bombing not only ISIS, but allies that are opposed to to the, the, the Assad regime. So that's a micro example of Russia's foothold in Syria. And, yeah. and now in the middle East, reestablishing themselves. Yeah. You can say to that, so what? Who cares? That's fine. Or Let you can, them do or, you, or you can I say, don't
1: know. or you can say that's, that's a bad thing. And that is a, a grievous wound. And, we need to do that anyway. Yes. Yeah. So, so here's is, the question. Which is but, the, but, Cambod- but, uh, the Cambodian listen. argument,
2: right? Yeah. No, I want to answer because I'm- No, let me give you one, one final thing, and that's it. If you do that in the one, I'm saying this on one micro level, the one where, place where America's retreated, and again, I'm not making any judgment. I'm just saying these are the sort of basic broad facts of this, and the Russians filled in that vacuum, right? And, and they did it in a very brutal way. That's one out of, what, 600 examples. Imagine what would happen or what would happen If the 600 other examples, we backed out and retreated in the same way? Is it also? Does the Russia I mean, can't
1: afford 600 interventions. This, a lot of, a lot of. Well, it's
2: not Russia. It's it's Saudi. It's Iran. China. It's whoever. It doesn't I mean, even China. even
0: even those places. I, I think those those interventions become expensive. And I think part of part of the difficulty for the United States. They don't pay a cost of, at home though. Sure, Iranians don't pay a cost at home. They, the Russians aren't paying. But not part really. of part of the, part of the reason. Ultimate why they, cost. Not, a big, a,
2: not as big a cost as what happened in America. Immediate, Iran. That's immediate. That's certainly that's certainly
0: true. But but the cost that America pays at home is actually a version of a cost that they pay abroad. Of course. There is a narrative abroad about American foreign policy and about our interventionism. And to the extent the United States is willing to not be entangled in some of these other places, um, even if there are these adverse consequences, I think it may, in fact, strengthen their hand and give them a bit more credibility. And it, it's it's impossible to say what the outcomes sure, will be. Sure, sure, I, I am not promising any sort of panacea. I don't think that we will be um, we will live in a world of peace if only the United States hadn't gone into um, Iraq after 9-11 or if only the United States had promptly pulled out of Afghanistan that things would be perfect here, that we would have a, a lower risk of terror attacks here in the United <laughs> States overall. I can't be sure of that at all. Um, I can say- By that- the way, there's been more blowback, to use that term that I
2: can't uh-huh. stand, in Europe than there has been in the United States since 9-11, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, the ter- terror attacks in the American, American homeland, to use that awful word, is we're supposed to be, you know- one a day after blowback from Iraq and does it happen overseas? Yeah. Again, I'm not well, I'm just we, saying we protected
0: ourselves
1: with the Patriot Act. And I, <laughs> I,
0: wouldn't, I wouldn't over, yeah. I wouldn't overstate, I wouldn't overstate that the way in which sort of the, the blowback thing is supposed to work and that the United States would be a wash in, in terrorists. There may be someone who would make that uh, more extreme, that, that more extreme statement. But I think the overstatement of the risk posed by terrorists who live in Niger who are perhaps carrying out like terror campaigns there or planning terror attacks? The notion that they can actually project power back into the United States, like they have a very limited ability to harm us here at home.
1: Right, um, and and also, I mean, uh, Moynihan's uh, I think is also positing that we are a, a on net a stabilizing force in the world compared to what would happen if we withdraw i don't know shock, by the
2: way, i don't know that right just, but like I'm, we yeah, could be we could asking be asking the question i mean i, I, think I think mean positing
1: i mean positing right. in, yeah, in yeah, the totally real sense the yeah. like, like it's a possibility and i always think about this in terms literally of vietnam and cambodia like it is the you can't come up with a worse worst case scenario of we pull out of vietnam yeah and then oh my god really we're just going to kill what was it 40 percent of the population in in cambodia yeah yes. it's
2: about 1.9 million
1: an incredible genocide, like immediately thereafter. So I think that- Which by the
2: way, was there was a enormous um, uh, movement of people that blamed that genocide on the US and and that they created the conditions for that. Uh, William Shawcross, who became weirdly enough, a very, very big defender of the Iraq war, um, wrote a book, a pro-Iraq war book called Allies about the US and the UK, whose father was a, I believe, a prosecutor at Nuremberg, wrote a book called Sideshow saying- that the uh, genocide wouldn't have happened uh, without uh, the American war in Vietnam vigorously opposed by a guy named Peter Rodman who argued actually a fairly convincing case on the other side. And weirdly enough, it's actually kind of a a nice story. They became very good friends later in life, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a good example, but to Camille's point where he says, you know, you're never going to get rid of this kind of conflict and this roiling, angry conflict in the world. You see the, you know, these fetid awful places where, you know, we think we think things are bad here, for Christ's sake. I mean, every other country has hideous racism and hatred against tribes, or hmm. or or sort of very little. You, you can pick a place and you can find it. The question, I guess, is, and again, I just posit this question. There's no answer to this, and I don't know what the answer is. But I will talk to. I, w- I would say a guy like Richard Haas would say who's a realist and not a neocon, but he would make the argument, and which I'm compelled by, but not convinced by is that all of these places will be um warring bloody disastrous maybe even genocidal places uh regardless and if you take the american influence out entirely it just gets worse all over the world because the other big actors are undemocratic and brutal states like china like russia like iran and you know their proxy states all of those people are somewhere you wouldn't want to publish a free newspaper or you wouldn't want to disagree with the regime. So therefore, and again it's different all over, but those are a couple of big, big examples when they intervene in those conflicts because no one is going to sit by and do nothing. It's almost like when we talk about, you know, the tar sands oil or whatever is the pipeline. Well, somebody's gonna pump it. It's not going to be stay underground. That's right. It's effectively what happens with foreign policy and it's their argument of the Richard Haas's of the world is that if we don't do something and they are very reluctant people to get boots on the ground, I think Richard Haas would... St- Say
1: they're very reluctant. Well, uh, I think Richard no, Haas still
2: defend not going to Baghdad in 1991. Um, uh, I think he was part of that decision to not go into Baghdad and to limit the
0: scope of that, but you know, but what the, can but we the other, do? But there's the other narrative with Syria that what, what's wrong in Syria, what happened in Syria, no, is but even, even the 91, not, not I mean
1: enough, actually, the of nine, course there's yeah. that too, which the I think is also going totally to, wrong. The not going to Baghdad decision, which I think is totally defensible in the hindsight of history, but, but for the 10 years after that mm-hmm. was like a neocon uh, like a watering kit. Yeah. yeah. If, it was only, like, if, if we had done this, yeah. if we had finished the job, uh, then all of this wouldn't have happened. Uh, it, it,
2: well, it's- I mean, the, the one say the one in the one sense that they might be right in one small sense. I think that it, it's not as obvious as some of these neoconservatives thought that it was, but it, it, at the same time is that there was, we're still on the precipice of, of Arab revolutionary movements, still, they're kind of exhausting their Marxism at the time. Because remember in the 70s, the PLO, the PFLP, which is the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, various of these, these, these groups were basically Marxist in nature and had support and help and soldiers on their side from, you know, Brigada Rossa in Italy and the Bonner Meinhof Gang, et cetera. It was before the real transformation to an Islamic movement. Um, Saddam Hussein had not gone to his Islamism, which he, he reached for in 2001, 2002, you know, had a Quran made with his blood. There is a grand Saddam Hussein mosque and a secular leader of this country is really lurching towards that. Not because he believes it so much, but kind of in the same way that Barack Obama and, and Donald Trump are religious, right? Because it's, it's expedient. So in 91, we, would we have gotten a Mahdi army would we have gotten an ISIS type resistance? No, I think probably not. But you can't say that. But you know, Iran was still at the time very desperate after the Iran Iraq War to get its influence in a country where the Shia were the majority
1: and being oppressed. So you never know. Who knows? But they're interesting two, arguments. Two quick things, and and we should start uh, wrapping up here because we're getting uh, getting late. Uh, one is that I believe um, that the notions that we normally have of hey. M- Extending empire isn't cost-efficient. It's, it's kind of right. bad. That also affects other countries, not just us. <laughs> That's true. Um, so, like, if if you know, if China and Russia want to totally overextend themselves, countries that are much poorer than us, much more poorly governed, uh, which have, in both cases, kind of powder kegs with the way that they've been repressing their own citizens for a long time, Uh, if they want to do that, there's going to be unintended consequences on their own soil. Uh, A a second is that we normally have a sense of, for lack of a better word, subsidiarity, that uh, (laughs) people should and will uh, act better when they feel like they can have responsibility for their own affairs. And when there is a more or less unchallenged single superpower in the world, it allows all countries, including uh, you know strong allied countries, France, just to throw a one out of a hat um, to have all kinds of conspiracy theories and to nurse grievances against the one country that they suspect uh, is really calling the shots behind the scenes it 's a good point point. Yeah. and that there are in the retrenchment to a, a more uh, I I would argue a more kind of normal or more healthy state of equilibrium or, or Librium um, out there. It's not quite equal. There might be more people locally all over the world taking more responsibility for their own affairs rather than sitting back on the sidelines and sniping or whatever. I think that's, that's a, right. all of that could be healthy. And it could also at the very same time. And I think anti-interventionists need to always grapple with this possibility Um could lead to a Cambodian genocide or more Syria awfulness. Mm -hmm. Um, Both those things are possible for me. I want to get to a place where people are more responsible for their own own uh, affairs. And I think that that it it's worth the uh, the the horrifying kind of sense of of we don't really know what's going to happen with that. Um,
2: America discovered. And it's an interesting point that you make because America discovered in the past hundred probably I would expand it 200 years that to be the big guy on the block, to be the big superpower meant to be hated by your enemies and your allies, especially your allies, especially your allies. And that's, and to your point, we saw a little bit, bit of that in the Obama years. We criticized rightfully the Obama administration for its policy in Libya, but the real Libya action was effectively led and controlled by the French. And we realized that when we back out, to my point, where my point also is wrong, or my kind of supposition of what would happen after is wrong, is that there are, are other democracies that do have free presses that might step up and do the bad, stupid things that we did in the past. <laughs> that we see the, the the French government leading the campaign um, in the same way that the Russians saw Syria as, let's exert our influence. The Americans are backing away. The French did that in Libya, for sure. And it, was, it, it didn't work out well for them.
1: Yeah. And yet we're still on it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well... That was a pretty heavy fucking segment. Yeah, no, Look, it was, man. it's it's good. We
1: up for variety. Camille let's for for your listeners out there. Camille is always like we really need to talk about, like, Syria and Turkey. And me and Moynihan are like, oh, like, all right. Do I have to know what's happening? Can we happening talk about uh,
2: yeah.
0: Steely Dan for 20 minutes?
1: Or we
3: we
0: yeah. didn't We didn't even talk about the State of the Union, oh, which is, is apparently the most watched State of the you Union
1: could, I, ever the, did you? You? in the history I, halfway of the Union. Oh, yeah, you did. I yeah. attended FDR. FDR. Yeah, I sure
2: did. Yeah, you I'm talked sorry. about uh, about James Polk. Um, is, d-
0: do you have any quick highlights, lowlights as we're punching out? Anything to say about the State of the Union at all? It's like a thousand
1: years ago at this yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, it, it does feel
2: boring, like it. Uh, uh, boring AF.
1: Carnival but, <laughs> of the Scutniks.
2: Yeah, I mean, God, it's the only thing that I noticed about it was the North Korean nature of the leader clapping for himself the whole time, very loudly, it, like right, right on the, the microphone. Mic. Yeah, Except, it's
1: so weird. I like that. I'll defend. A, Why? A, because when I, whenever I'm, like, uh, introduced uh, at, like, you know, Libertarian Party conventions or you something. Do you always
0: clap right into the mic? I totally do.
2: I'm yeah. like,
1: like, all right, that's great. Matt Welch right there. I yeah, I, I love that move. According yeah, to have N- were- those
2: people that are in wheelchairs, can they clap for you?
1: Hey, you know, the the guy the North Korean guy is like shaking his crutches. Yeah, Wait, uh, You guy, guys,
2: the guy in the with the Bitcoin tattoo in his face. Is he coming for you? <laughs> what's that? What's that
1: guy doing? He's shooting me with a a gun assembled. We, we uh, mentioned the, the
0: sixteen skutniks uh, Sixteen, according to NPR, is it
1: eighteen? I think we had eighteen skutniks
0: yeah. Eighteen. jeez which is probably a record. I don't know that most people know what the hell a skutnik is. Explain the skutnik you want me to do it? Yeah, you do it. Try well, it. was the dude that Reagan brought to the State of the Union. Like Reagan is the one who pioneered this. This. This technique His name Wasn't human just Skutnik, It was Lenny Lenny Skutnik, Skutnik, I know Because that yeah. was the that but,
2: you oh, Hi, the hello I'm here <laughs> I'm very I'm very thirsty Yes Lenny well, Skutnik Let's look at your mustache yeah. Lenny what's, yeah, what's Reagan? Reagan. Did Lenny Skutnik have a mustache? He had a
1: fucking good mustache He had like, a, like, like a push 1978 for Cleveland Indians mustache Oh, he was oh, like yeah. He was
2: like uh,
0: John Oates So <laughs> So many yeah. so, so,
2: so John Reagan was the Daryl Hall To Skutnik's John Oates I was gonna
0: finish saying That Ronald Reagan The great communicator developed the technique of planting human anecdotes inside of Congress for the State of the Union yeah. so that he could point to them and get this applause line. And uh, <laughs> yeah, this Trump, man from Wisconsin was mauled by a pack of, of, of tigers. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and he and America loves him. And we love yeah. the flag. He actually do you remember the bit where he he had everyone clap for the flag?
1: Yeah, that yeah. was like almost our, our great flag yeah <laughs> the flag. i
2: was like i don't know it could be better design my favorite
1: um, uh bit was when he like at some point exasperatedly just sort of pointed over at democrats because he said like oh we need to have cheaper drugs like hey over there come on give, come on. Yeah. give yeah. it up yeah, yeah. um i that's will a, say
0: that's a pinko policy
2: come
1: on get up guys <laughs> the most there's a lot the, of kente
0: cloth too come there, there was a lot of kente cloth really? it was the was What's, wait is today the first day african of, pattern is today february yes. 1st well uh Yes, it is. Okay, so that was the day before Black History Month. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Was that it? Yeah, Maybe that's why they wore the kente cloth. I don't know that they've done that at State of the Unions before. Maybe it was just a show of solidarity. Maybe it was celebrating Black Panther. The, the movie, the new Marvel movie. Have you watched it? Have you I, seen haven't, it? I haven't seen it. No, you rooting. against It doesn't against come out it. until you the. You are rooting
1: against it. I Everyone's it. going bananas only, for
0: this movie. I'm only rooting against all of the people who I've seen, and all of the people means racist, I've seen like two of, two screenings racist. that are doing this. But people who have rented theaters for black only screenings where you dress up in African garb and come to see An this African garb this fictional movie about a fictional African country. <laughs> <laughs> wherein is wherein in a Africa? man is both the dictator of this country. Yes, yes. I it, don't know anything about it. Yes, Black Panther, Marvel character, who is a member of the Avengers, who lives in a place called,
1: what the hell is the name of that place? Mumu Land?
0: No, no, no. It's where they get all the vibranium from. It, it doesn't matter. the fuck is vibranium? I want it to be an okay movie. I'm a little frustrated, you but I was going to say- it. You want it to be a bad movie, admit it. The most it. gut-wrenching moment of the State of the Union was, when donald trump um referred to the parents of the two girls who had been oh, killed geez. by the ms ms 13 guys and i mean just me just clap clap for them set, so set aside horrible. the specific policies uh, towards illegal immigration um and not the rhetoric that was used during the speech because so much of that sounds like previous years but the actual nastiness of the policy being articulated by this administration. And by nastiness, I mean actual curtailment of legal immigration by by a magnitude that is almost like weird to imagine anyone could seriously suggest because it's disastrous economically. Set that aside for a moment and just focus on the tactlessness of repeatedly saying to this these parents who are being watched by millions of people on television, your children were murdered. They were murdered, callously murdered. Just
2: weird. I mean, using anybody that way as a political prop... It, and it, it is, makes me uncomfortable. But that
0: that context is particularly weird. And the last yeah. time he did one of these, it wasn't a State of the Union. It was like um, the kind of default. But on it was the State but, of the but Union. it was similar. Yeah. Um, he had a similar moment with uh, a military military family. Usually, it's them. That's that when Van that Jones time. said he's president. Yeah, he's presidential. He became that? president tonight he Became president tonight Yeah, Van we, was we, a lot more forceful in his response. Go back to this. Well, no,
2: trust me, he learned yeah. his lesson. He yeah. he gave us he
0: gave us a sugary sugary candy. Poison pills or something like that.
1: I commend um, more recent <laughs> subscribers to the Fifth Column to go and listen to our post last time State of the Union fake, or fake not State of the Union. Right. What sure episode was number was that? Don't know. Well, let's say twenty three, but yes, it's not twenty three. Right.
0: Wakanda yeah. is the fake African country that Black Panther is. Thank the, uh, you.
1: Is the dictator of Voice Wakanda. of God? Just he is. He is a rifling. dictator. I mean, he's
2: a
0: monarch.
1: Right? I can't believe it doesn't matter. Wakanda. But- Go back and listen <laughs> to that episode. Because, is uh, having
2: <laughs> another civil war. Wakanda's gotten its independence
1: many years ago. Oh, God. Wakanda. Have we talked enough about uh, Jesse Jackson being on the Me Too? Is uh, he on the record? Oh, um, there, was, there was like some allegations against him, sure. Oh, no, no. Oh, oh, oh the shit, record. that's
2: right. Oh, I thought you were talking about on, on I thought He's, Jesse Jackson on sang hair, on Cher's <laughs> record. <laughs> I can't believe no. oh, Me Too. Oh. No, like, oh, yeah, there was Turn a, that, well, he had a baby with his secretary, didn't he? Rainbow didn't. Bush. That yeah, was completely
0: was consensual. I mean, she totally wanted that baby. It's fine. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. If if in fact that's true, I don't know if he really did, but I wouldn't doubt it. Um, Can someone someone email me? Bye. (laughs) Wait a second.
2: That's it. You can say bye now, but can someone email me and who's listening to the show and, and remind me? If I told the story of meeting Jesse Jackson on the campaign trail, and if I didn't uh, tell, and I'll tell it next time, it was I'm really funny. I'm pretty sure you did. I I probably. Did. Yeah. It's I a just re- I'm, like, I'm like an old man now, just repeat all the <laughs> shit that I've said. Did I tell you about real, the time. Real,
1: real quick though, Matt, didn't you have a, some idiot who wrote something? I uh, know, but these guys are all like squirming in their chairs. Oh, now, I now need we're squirming. To get <laughs> a drink. Right I don't know. It's been it's ball. been a long
0: time. There's plenty yeah. of other stuff I wanted. We're to We're not talk fucking about. Joe Rogan. Let's get this thing over with. Yeah.
2: Let's go. I think we can wrap it next time. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Later.
1: We, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan of-